I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and this is The Jackpod, where On Point news analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magna. Well, looky here. We are at episode 20, so more two times double digits, let me put it that way. What is the headline for today, Jack? The bystander. The bystander. Okay, who, who is the bystander in this case? Uh, Joe Biden. And uh, for the second year in a row, he has declined the invitation for a 15-minute interview around the Super Bowl with a three to four minute uh, part of it that would even be in the pregame festivities. The audience for the Super Bowl will be over 100 million Americans. By comparison, Biden's State of the Union last year had an audience of 27 million. So here he has a chance to talk to over 100 million and he's turning it down. And, you know, it isn't just out of the blue. It's emblematic, I'm afraid, of a president who's who's been in hiding. Mm. Uh, Consider, you know, press conferences. Obama has had 25 in his first term, Trump 23, Biden 11. Uh, The White House says he does sessions with reporters, Q&As, yes, but they're very short. For example, on the plane flying back from his Ireland trip, the record says shows that he uh, he opened questions at 2:43 a.m. and stopped them at 2:45 a.m. That's oh. all of two minutes. Uh, interviews with major papers, uh, Trump and Obama did scores of them. Biden zero. The Washington Post comments: President Biden hasn't dropped the microphone. He appears to have lost it. Mm. And Joe himself joked about this to the White House Correspondents' Dinner last year. He said, in a lot of ways, this dinner sums up my two years in office. I talk for 10 minutes, take zero questions, and cheerfully walk away. Wow. I mean, ha-ha, Mr. President. But uh, I don't know if you're a big user of emojis, Jack, but the but the uh, the choice of the Biden White House to decline doing that Super Bowl interview for the second year in a row to me is that it's that smack my head emoji. I would have like pushed that about 50 times right now on my phone because, I mean, for any sitting president, let alone one in a presidential election year who talks about the importance of preserving democracy, that Super Bowl interview is a gimme. I mean, I hate to say this because I don't like the fact that this is how Washington journalism works a lot, but of any interview a president could possibly give, that one is one where, you know, a White House can set some pretty strict rules around it and kind of do the interview, uh, you know, the way the president wants it. And yet he's still saying no to the biggest television event in this country. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I'm just taking in a big an election sigh. year in an election with everything year. on the line. Yeah. 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 And and of course, we know the reason they don't want him to make a gaffe. And he is prone to uh, misspeaking, misstating and in general seeming to uh, portray uh, a loosening grip. Let's put it that mm. way when he speaks in public. OK, so this um, observation of Biden not engaging with the public or the media uh, as nearly as much as his predecessors did. I mean, other people have noticed the same thing, Jack, and uh, and you, you've you noted uh, 
their analysis. Yes, this is, uh, we're going to hear from Whit Ayers. He's the founder and president of North Star Opinion Research, a, a veteran Republican pollster. And uh, this is uh, Mr. Ayers uh, making a comparison between uh, Jimmy Carter and Joe Biden uh, talking to uh, Bill Crystal of the Bulwark. Joe Biden is the weakest American president since Jimmy Carter. And there's some similarity between the two men. Both of them defeated, weakened Republican incumbents. Gerald Ford, in the case of Jimmy Carter, who was very unpopular after he pardoned Nixon. And Biden defeated Trump after a chaotic first term. But both have conducted themselves in a way that has led a majority of Americans to disapprove of their job performance. And Biden is starting to get that Carter feel. Jack, let me just jump in here. Um, uh, just to reiterate what you said, Whit Ayers is a, uh, a Republican um, consultant and, and analyst. Uh, however, I, maybe maybe a little later in our conversation, Jack, I might stand up in, uh, in defense of President Carter. Um, but why do you think that uh, Ayers' comparison between Biden and Carter may be apt? Well, for one thing. No Democratic incumbent in the polls has been as um, as exposed, as vulnerable as uh, as Biden, except Carter. And Biden's numbers at 37 percent in the latest NBC poll, I think, are even slightly worse than Carter's. Biden, uh, one political scientist says, it is time for Democrats to panic. Mm. They felt that way. Uh, in 1980 about, uh, about Jimmy Carter. But there's a deeper comparison uh, that Ayers makes to Carter. That's the sense of mastery over events. He is just unable to affect events in a positive way, whether it's Ukraine or immigration or the Middle East. Um, it just feels like events are out of control and Biden is a bystander watching events spin out of control. And, and once that perception settles in, it becomes incredibly difficult to change it. And I've seen nothing over the last few months to change that perception about Joe Biden. OK, Jack, um, I definitely want to hear what you have to say in just a second. But in my maybe wan defense of President Carter and the sense of things feeling out of control. Certainly he had major problems uh, on his plate right up until the morning that uh, mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan was inaugurated, right? Mm -hmm. So of uh, mm -hmm. the economy and the Iran hostage crisis. So th that is absolutely true. And I can see how that was a powerful driver in the perceptions that Americans had of Carter and, and you know, acted on the, those perceptions in their vote. But I don't know, as I've been learning relatively recently, the Carter administration, even though it was 444 days, the president himself was working right up, to, up until the literal last seconds that he was in the presidency. I, I, you know, those pictures of him in, the, in his sweater in the Oval Office. He takes off the sweater so that he can go to Reagan's inauguration. And uh, the release of the hostages was timed or held back long enough so that it would happen after Reagan got inaugurated. So I guess what I'm saying is, does, does perception always match reality? No, no. And, and quite unfair to Jimmy Carter. You know, the one major diplomatic uh, 
uh, achievement of post-war American diplomacy, uh, other than you know NATO, I suppose, is the Camp David Accords, Egypt and Israel. That was brokered by Jimmy Carter with the same indefatigability that you're discussing. I mean, the occasion, how he dealt with Sadat and Begin, and uh, and I, I mentioned before on this program to bring Begin around, he put photographs of Begin's grandchildren out there saying, what a stake you have in the future. And he named them. This is Zachary. This is, this is uh, Rachel. This is, and the old man, well, he wasn't so old, but Bacon started to cry. <laughs> I mean, that was Jimmy Carter. Uh, he, he made, that was a major, major American achievement. And as for the idea of mastery over events, well, you know, Lincoln said, I claim not to have controlled events, mm. but confess that events have controlled me. So many presidents have felt uh, that, even the greatest president, that events were in the saddle. Yeah, you know, and another thought about what Whit Ayers is saying, because, of course, he's picking up again on this perception issue, which I think he's exactly right on. But again, I would say in Biden's case, some of that perception... Some of it does not match re with reality because the events that are out of control, I mean, the number one thing that's in chaos right now is the Republican Party. And, you know, Biden tried to get things done during COVID. He got legis some legislation passed um, that's had a pretty big impact on this country, um, all with the resistance of, the, of a unified Republican Party. The only thing they're unified on right now is saying no to Joe Biden. But just look at what happened in the past few days, Jack, right, with the yes, with that border yes. bill. Yes. The Democrats compromised almost everything that they ever stood for regarding immigration. Um, the, you know, Senator Lankford negotiated a great bill for the Republicans. And so but then then his own caucus on the on the right blows it all up, literally blows it all up. So we don't have border control, more border control. Now we don't have aid for Ukraine. And I mean, yeah, I get it. Joe Biden is a bystander to that chaos, but that's not what the American public perceives. So here's my question to you, Jack. Can Biden turn that perception around? And if so, how? Well, there's a, an emerging uh, argument that this um, border uh, debacle, the Republicans essentially voting against their own bill. And by the way, doesn't this show that maybe it's Donald Trump? who's mm -hmm. the shadow president. I mean, let's face it, Donald Trump called that tune. It's Trump who seems to be controlling events, at least in Congress. But, but there is an emerging view that uh, that bill and the debacle and the way they have run away from it has given Biden a, a, an opening. Nate Cohn of The Times says, Biden has a clear line of defense on the border issue and a strong argument on the economy. We know all the good numbers on the economy, the astounding number uh, of, of new jobs created in, in January, for example. But he, he says, uh, Cohn does, that the, the conditions are ripe for Biden to make and has an unmistakable political opening. The conditions are there for him to make a comeback uh, by citing the economy and by doing something else, that is, following uh, the footsteps of another Democratic president uh, running for re-election. My duty as president requires that I use every means within my power to get the laws the people need on matters of such importance and urgency. 
I am therefore calling this Congress back into session on the 26th of July. Now, that is President Harry Truman making his second appearance on the podcast, by the way, Jack. <laughs> and that's from his acceptance speech at the Democratic nomination uh, convention in 1948. So what did Truman do there that you look to as an example? He called for a special session of Congress, only done once before in the 1850s. Uh, by a president, but a president has that authority, and Joe Biden has the authority after his, when he makes his convention speech, to do exactly that and say, I demand they come back to Washington and fix the border. Will he do it? Well, we'll have to see. He's not Harry Truman. Harry, by the way, said that he had given hell to the Republicans. He said, I never did give them hell. I just told the truth, and they thought it was hell. Dear. But, Jack, remind me, why did President Truman demand the return of Congress to session in 1948? Because he labeled it the do-nothing Congress. In fact, by comparison to this Republican Congress, it was a stellar, had a stellar record of achievement, including the Marshall Plan. But what the Congress didn't act on were housing bills, medical insurance, national health insurance, and other uh, uh, Truman fair deal programs that, uh, that they wouldn't even vote on. So Trump, so he was saying, come back and vote on these things. You say you're for, you know, more housing. Well, let's let's see if you're going to vote for housing and so uh-huh. on. So he called them back into session. OK, so now I understand the, the obvious comparisons are there in terms of, as you said, Biden could call Congress back into session to deal with the border. But I hear your... Um, uh, in your pause, Jack, I hear your doubt that perhaps uh, Biden is that kind of political animal. Um, so this takes us back to what you were saying earlier regarding the comparisons that uh, Whit Air was making between Biden and President Carter. And um, Whit Ayers also said something else to the Bulwark podcast uh, about things that no matter if he tried— President Biden couldn't change. The vast majority of Americans, including a vast majority of Democrats, think he's just too old to serve effectively. In his mid-80s, in the most difficult job in the world. And the second vulnerability is that virtually no one in either party thinks that Kamala Harris is ready for prime time. The White House is fond of saying, well, a lot can change in the course of eight months. Well, that's true. But what won't change is Joe Biden is not going to get any younger, any more physically vigorous or any sharper mentally, and Kamala Harris is not going to get any more ready to be president of the United States. There's nothing they can do about either one. Mm, Jack, your thoughts? I think he's got something there. And of course, it's, a, it's, a, it's an invitation to Yuma. Dave Barry says, good thing for Biden that Trump is his opponent again, because Biden is more likely to remember his name. Ooh, Uh, You know, Tip O'Neill said, put a lantern on your troubles for politicians. And Biden has tried to do that. He jokes. He says he quipped. He says, I've never I've never been more optimistic about our country in the last 800 years. You know, he he does joke about it, but it's not a joke to the public. People are frightened there. The sense of um, of things being out of control is partly fed by Biden's feebleness. Uh, he, he can't. He just simply does not measure up to the moment rhetorically, no matter what it is. We can go through the, 
you know, the gaffes and so on. But some of them have been serious. I mean, several times he has provoked China by talking, you know, saying the U.S. would defend Taiwan, abandoning the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity. He called it, He called for regime change in Russia in a, you know, it's not our policy. He Something, he's not on his game. We all know that. And it's no good saying, well, uh, you know, uh, I'm being competent and so on. Uh, maybe he is, but people don't see it that way. The paradox, though, you know, it, this presidential time, presidents mm. govern for today and tomorrow. He's not governed well for today, but he's the president of tomorrow. The Americans in the future are going to, you know, drive on roads Joe Biden created with the, you know, Infrastructure Act. Their economy is going to be stronger because of the CHIPS Act, which will essentially onshore uh, our, uh, you know, technological uh, uh, mastery of the future. And, uh, and they will have a better environment and a shot of, it's, of surviving the worst of global warming thanks to his efforts on, on the, in the Inflation Reduction Act, which, according to the Washington Monthly, is the greatest act ever taken against uh, climate change in history. So the future, if it could vote, would vote strongly for this old guy. His trouble is, in, is now. Mm, okay. So, Jackpot listeners... Now comes the question for you. Obviously, what we want to know is, do you see President Joe Biden as a bystander now? Because Jack's absolutely right. Uh, events around the world and here in the United States are gyrating so rapidly, it does feel like a lot is out of control. So do you do you think the president is a bystander, unable to uh, control events in the way that a president many times can. And if so, do you think he can do anything to change that? What do you think President Biden should do to uh, uh, no longer be a, a bystander uh, if you think that's that's what he is? So this is my spiel that I give every week. I know a lot of you are already reaching for your phones because you have the on point Vox Pop app and my hat's off to you. Get your friends to get it too. Because for the folks who don't, Go to your phone, wherever you get your apps, and look for On Point Vox Pop. That's the way you can have your say here in the jackpot. So looking forward to what you think about uh, Jack's observation of President Joe Biden, the bystander. So, Jack, um, as always, the folks who do listen give us a ton of thoughtful comments, and it was a really mixed bag this week. Hey, Jack. Hey, Megna. Uh, this is Jeff from Buffalo. Jack, you're a national treasure. Hi, this is Kale. Kale like the vegetable, lively in Spokane, Washington. Uh, I don't agree with Jack on this meddler's trap. So which one's it going to be? Jack Beattie, national treasure or Jack <laughs> Beattie, gadfly? We'll find out in just a minute. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Okay, we're back. And Jack, by the way, I mean, obviously, if I were to be forced to choose between National Treasure and Gadfly, you are absolutely (laughs) a national treasure. (laughs) But it was really interesting because we did get people who um, disagreed with your thesis from last week's podcast, which was about the meddler's trap or why the U.S. gets and stays entangled militarily um, in places around the world and sometimes uh, for generations. So let's pick up where we left off. Kale Lively from Spokane, Washington, um, the one who disagreed with you just before the break. Um, Here's more about why he thinks uh, that the U.S. is not, in fact, a meddler. On whole, the United States has been a positive for the world, and our, quote, meddling, unquote, has been a better for the world. And this idea that we should stop uh, cedes territory to nations like Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, Russia in the modern day, or China. And I don't think that that's a good thing. Okay, and picking up on that thought, here's Jimmy Roche from Baltimore, Maryland. Using the Philippines as a model to make this argument that uh, we could have prevented Pearl Harbor leads to this problematic question about then America's involvement against Nazi Germany, which to me is ultimately a moral choice that I think as a nation we had to make. Over to you, Jack. Yeah, to pick up uh, Jimmy's point first, uh, you know, David Kennedy and his magisterial freedom from fear shows how even as late as uh, as December 7th, 1941, the isolationist current in America was strong and Roosevelt was having to bucket. And there was a question whether uh, Roosevelt would be able to, as it were, convert the Japanese attack into uh, declaring war against uh, the Nazis, which he saw as the major threat and precisely in Jimmy's terms as a moral challenge. But Hitler spared the president the the political, perhaps tricky effort to amalgamate these two enemies by, on December 11th, declaring war on the United States. So he was saved by the bell there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a near thing is the point. In fact, on the day of uh, December uh, 7th, I think the uh, it was a Sunday, uh, the Chicago Tribune, an isolationist organ, had a big sort of inside story of how the Roosevelt administration was trying to manipulate us into war right there on the front page. Mm. But, Jack, just quickly to Kale's point, um, I think what he's trying to get at is if the U.S. didn't, quote unquote, meddle, the U.S. would not have been involved. Perhaps. I mean, you're, you're, uh, the war declaration that you just mentioned, notwithstanding, in helping stop Nazi Germany. 
Oh, I see what you're saying. If we hadn't been in the Philippines and the Japanese hadn't had to, weren't, you know, needing to grab oil from the Dutch East Indies, uh, they wouldn't have attacked Pearl Harbor. Well, okay, in that sense, uh, I, I, I agree. But everything we know about Franklin Roosevelt, including that we had a to-the-brink-of-war policy through the fall of 1941, and in which a uh, U.S. destroyer was sunk, the Reuben Gray. The president was pushing this country uh, to face up to Nazi aggression. And I, I, you, we can't do counterfactuals, yeah. but uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Would, and and you know, doesn't that point out how accident rules in history? Mm. You know, there's a, there's a line from a Tom Stoppard play, uh, history... Uh, knocks on uh, a thousand doors at once, and the doorkeeper is chance. Wow. Oh, okay, Jackpot listeners, I just want you to know, Jack literally pulled that out of his brain. <laughs> on the spot. I keep saying we're going to do a podcast about your photographic memory, Jack, um, uh, uh, one of these days. Okay, so so th that was uh, Kale and Jimmy who uh, took exception to the meddler's trap analogy, but obviously there were many listeners who did agree with you, and here are some of them. Of course we should let go. There just doesn't seem to be any question about it. I think America needs to take a step back and kind of deal with their own problems before meddling in other people's issues. I think a lot of people think we're coming to save the day when we actually just make it so much worse. Who knew that we had troops on the Syrian border? Who knew? I did not know we had troops in Iraq. I think Jack is spot on with the meddler's trap, and I'd be curious to know what he thinks about the biggest meddler's trap of all, and that's Israel. Okay, so you heard Nancy Fernandez from Buffalo, New York, Sam Reynolds in Providence, Rhode Island, and Miles Allison in Austin, Texas, with that question about Israel, Jack. Yeah, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, there was a book maybe 10 years ago by Steve Walt at Harvard and John Mersheimer at the University of Chicago. I think it was called The Israeli Lobby. And they argued that, in fact, uh, the meddler's trap is acting has been true in the Middle East with Israel. And they point out that uh, we say that Israel is our ally, and yet every time we have action in the Middle East, we have to keep them out of it. It was a very controversial book because the authors went too far. They alleged, really uh, wrongly, uh, dual loyalty on the part of uh, American Jewish leaders, which is just uh, beyond the pale, as it were. But they make a good point that our alliance for Israel is not cost-free. Mm -hmm. You could argue that those Americans who died, the three servicemen, who, 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 people who died, what, 10, two weeks ago, they were sort of casualties of our alliance with, uh, with, uh, with Israel because the attack came from an Iranian-inspired militia, which uh, had been attacking our people since the uh, war in Gaza broke out. The point is, it's not cost-free for us. And it, as we approach a, a perilous moment with Iran, it certainly isn't cost-free uh, for us because our, our, Iran is not an existential danger to this country. Mm -hmm. A nuclear-armed Iran is an existential danger to Israel. How do American interests and Israeli interests 
square when it comes to uh, the the menace and what to do about the menace of Iran. Mm. Well, Jack, it's interesting. You have a lot of listeners overseas as well. Uh, and Valerie Perry w- is one of them. She's a U.S. citizen but has been living in Sarajevo in Bosnia for many years. And she agreed with the concept of the meddler's trap, but came away thinking that, you know, it's not just full uh, involvement or isolation, that those two poles are not the only possibilities. Uh, And it's really interesting that she lives in Sarajevo, by the way, because she points to the 1990s when the U.S. was deeply involved, in her opinion, in international affairs to pursue human rights around the world. One of the many reasons I'm concerned about the outcome of the 2024 U.S. presidential election is precisely because of the potential for a full-scale return to short-term transactionalism as the primary global principle for international relations. While the post-Cold War period was far from perfect and many mistakes are clear, those decades did demonstrate an unprecedented growth in the recognition and enjoyment of basic fundamental rights that can be easy to be taken for granted until they're lost. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, from Sarajevo, I mean, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, Bill Clinton's reluctant uh, intervention against Serbia uh, ultimately uh, was so important in re- and, and his diplomatic approach, you know, the, the, the Dayton Accords and so on. He, he brokered a, 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 you know, a fragile peace, as it turned out, but a peace anyway that ended that, that horrible bloodletting there. And it's true that that was there was a, a human rights dimension to that. Our vital interests are not involved in the Balkans in any way. Of course, it, it wasn't a pure uh, card for Clinton, was it? Because while he did intervene in Europe, he did not uh, intervene to save Africans in Rwanda. And he admitted himself that the inconsistency uh, on the human rights uh, uh, program was 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 a painful one. Yeah. Okay, just a couple of more here because, again, people just bring so many different perspectives and new angles of analysis that I, I love them. This is our friend Howard Turner, the man with the view from Elkhart, Indiana. And he pointed out that the meddler's trap may not be a trap at all if you're in the defense sector. We have become so dependent on our military industrial complex and in turn their need to make a profit to stay in business. So while it would make us safer to pull back, we won't because the companies that build our weapons needs conflict and the threat of conflict to stay in business and trying to transition away from that would take far too much time. So, Jack, I love this observation from Howard because, you know, it's he's saying we have been trapped as a nation by the, you know, now the five defense contractors who gobble up half of the defense budget every year, plus sales, sale, sell arms overseas. They can't do business if there's no war. I think he's he certainly, you know, pre, he has the authority of President Eisenhower. I mean, this is, I remember as a kid listening to that, uh, that was his, uh, his farewell to the nation, warning about the military-industrial complex. He left out one word. Uh, in the original, it was the military-industrial-congressional <laughs> complex. Ah. <laughs> because that's the key thing, isn't it? It's all a matter of domestic politics and jobs and, oh, at... at you know, it's tied in with uh, with violence abroad. Yes, it gives it gives our, our our economy a vested interest in war, or at least in preparations for war. Okay, Jack. There's one more. 
that I want to play, uh, and it's from a member of the United States military, someone who has stood on the very front lines of the, the traps that you've been talking about. And this is James Hart of New Haven, Connecticut. I served in the United States Army from 2009 to 2013 as a combat engineer. And for many reasons, Jack's point about the meddler's trap really hit home because it struck me as almost a form of a spent cost fallacy. This idea that because we have simply invested so much that we must continue. And if our withdrawal from Afghanistan taught us anything, it was that while that initial acknowledgement, releasing ourselves from the meddler's trap, releasing ourselves from the spent cost fallacy, while uncomfortable, ultimately provides relief and space for real reflection on the purpose itself. Isn't that the voice of experience, Jack? Oh, that's a profound observation uh, from James. I'm, I'm so glad he called in. Well... That is it for today and episode 20 of The Jackpod. As always, keep your comments and thoughts and feedback going in this uh, ongoing conversation that Jack and I have with you, Jackpod listeners. So we'll look forward to seeing what you have to say. Jack, that's it for episode 20. Thank you so much. Thank you, Magna. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and this is The Jackpod from On Point.